rattlesnake. One of the hazards of working in, in this area, huh, Steve? Yes. Um, I heard it right when I passed. So I'm glad it gave us a heads up, but and now it's being super calm and minding its own business, but definitely not something if you want to step on when you're too far away from the truck or at all. I'm down in the Snake River Canyon with Steve Alsip, the president of the Birds of Prey NCA partnership and the project manager for a newly restarted raptor survey effort in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. It is early May. This is sort of the latest part of the season where I would expect birds to start laying eggs. And so we've got some nests that have 10 day old nestlings and we've got some that haven't even laid eggs yet, so we'll have a pretty wide spread. The birds that Steve is talking about are prairie falcons, the raptor species with the most uniquely dense population in the Snake River Canyon area, and the species whose habitat requirements define the boundary of the NCA itself. So my, like the point of what I'm doing today is to try to find exactly in this gigantic territory where they put their nests. And so I've got the female perched. I'm kind of waiting on her to go back to the nest. So if I can keep my eye on her, I'll hopefully find the nest relatively quickly. So here's Prairie Falcon right in the middle of our territory, circling up. And what would be awesome if it went to a ledge and sat on some eggs or went into a cavity and disappeared. But it just perched kind of smack in the middle of the territory on a spot that's got a ton of whitewash. Like that's one of its favorite spots to hang out. Whitewash is a fancy word for bird poop. So that lets us know that it's a, a perch they've used over and over again for a really long time. And I'm hoping that She's at the entrance of a cavity or a little cave where she's got her eggs. But right now she's preening and napping. Um, so she's not doing anything super exciting on my end, but I'm hoping to see some nestlings or see her go in incubating position and cover up her eggs. This section that we're in is super densely packed. Um, the researcher that did the original surveys in this area named it Hellhole. They're really small territories and they're just like back to back to back to back. Early in the season when they're establishing the territory boundaries and who's gonna nest where, like there's just this continuous swirl of angry, aggressive, vocalizing prairie falcons. You're listening to Common Land, a podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Common Land tells the stories behind protected areas, and you're listening to the final episode in our first season, which is focused on the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA 
a conservation area whose original boundaries were determined based upon the habitat needs of the prairie falcon. This is the project that brought me to Idaho the first time. Uh, I remember like getting this job and being like, okay, I'm gonna move to Boise in like four days. And I had never been to Boise, I'd never been to Idaho. It was early 2003 when Steve Alsup first applied to be a field technician on the Prairie Falcon monitoring project in the Snake River Canyon. And at first I didn't get it. I was super green, like had done one other wildlife job that included a couple of random days of raptor survey work. And then one of the techs backed out last minute and they called me and said, hey, can you be here in like four days to start work? So I drove out here and started work and was just like completely floored by the canyon and the amount of raptors here and the fact that, you know, we're an hour at most away from Boise and we're sort of in the middle of nowhere. This is a project that really locked me into wanting to pursue raptor biology as a career. And now it's 16 years later and I've gone from like being the like super green field tech to actually being the project manager. A lot can happen in 16 years. Mike Cokert, who has been conducting research on birds of prey in the Snake River Canyon for the past 50 years, explains what the prairie falcon monitoring effort has looked like over the course of his long career. The intensive efforts where we looked at the entire canyon or sampled the entire canyon was essentially these windows of time when we had major projects. We have the 70s, mm -hmm. we have the 90s, mm -hmm. and then we have the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And in between, there was some survey work of survey stretches. But after 2003, the funding dried up. And for 16 years, the status of the species that had defined the boundary of the NCA was a complete unknown. I guess I see that as my biggest professional failure, is that we didn't set anything up that would last long term. That's, that's probably my biggest regret. That's Karen Steenhoff, longtime raptor biologist and research colleague of Mike Coker. I'm not sure what we did wrong, but we didn't do it right. It has happened in so many arenas where uh, a, a very important study is done and needs to be continued. And something happens that, that those things are not, not continued. That's the voice of Dean Bibles, one of the key figures in the story of this NCA and someone who strove throughout his career as a land manager to connect scientific research with policy. There's no question that funding has gotten tighter and tighter and tighter, but there are certain things that just have to be done. Well, I don't know how managers can understand whether their management is being effective or not unless you monitor the results. And the result, the, the purpose is enhanced or maintain raptor populations. And if you don't know if that's happening, I don't know how you know what whether you're doing good or bad. It, that is the role of the federal government. Universities can take these, you know, graduate studies two or three years at a time, but they're never going to look at the long-term picture, and that's why we need the federal government to be supporting that. Karen Steenhoff and Dean Bibles make a strong argument for why the federal government should be funding long-term monitoring efforts, not just for prairie falcons, but for many wildlife species of concern. 
especially now as we know that the ecosystems of the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA are changing rapidly as a result of climate change and the introduction of invasive species, long-term survey efforts have become invaluable. However, although there was this 16-year gap in prairie falcon monitoring, lots of other research on birds of prey in the NCA has been conducted over this period, mainly in the form of graduate research studies, as mentioned by Karen. Boise State University is the home of the Raptor Research Center and is the only university in the country to offer a graduate degree program in raptor biology. One of the Boise State University professors who frequently advises graduate students conducting research in the NCA is Dr. Julie Heath. There was a meeting in 2008 where the BLM asked people to get together to make management recommendation for birds of prey and monitoring recommendations. And I went to that, and one of the things that's very true about this area is there's lots of raptor biologists, and I was a new professor, and I listened to what everybody else was interested in and picked something that no one else was working on on purpose, so I picked winter. Dr. Heath submitted a funding proposal to study changes in raptor densities in the NCA during the winter months. The project was funded, and Heath brought graduate student Neil Paprocki on board to conduct the research. Their hypothesis going into the project was that... Because habitat had been degraded over time, there'd be fewer raptors. Really early on, we thought, holy cow, there's a lot of raptors here in the wintertime. <laughs> and, and so really quickly we started developing some alternative hypotheses about what might drive raptor densities in the winter in the birds of prey area. And so we were interested in sort of a regional context for that project. And so that's when we decided to broaden the scope of the project to include Christmas bird count data for all of Western North America and look for shifts in wintering distributions. The most likely cause of these shifts in the wintering distribution of birds of prey? Climate change. Many other studies have shown, especially in the West, that one of the first climate variables that changes is minimum temperature rises because of the greenhouse effect. And so uh, temperatures overnight do not cool down as much as they um, had in the past because of greenhouse gases that trap the heat from the day. So minimum temperatures are one of the first metrics to rise. And um, that's more likely to happen in areas that are dry. So we're dry and it's winter and it's warmer. And so that all fits hand in hand with what we would think would happen in southern Idaho. And uh, with that also came decreased snow cover. And so those two changes, we thought that winters are probably less harsh than they used to be. By the time that Dr. Heath and her graduate student had completed this project, it was clear that... Indeed, many birds of prey are shifting their wintering distribution north during the winter, um, probably because winter conditions and climates are getting um, better or less harsh. And so um, they can tolerate wintering at a um, place that's further north. But you can imagine if you're the manager of um, a site uh, in Arizona or Southern California and you start having declines in your wintering population of birds and, uh, you know, you start to think, oh, I need to change my management of what I'm doing. Well, um, if that decline is truly attributable to something, some sort of threat on your property, yes. But if that decline is due to the fact that birds are no longer just coming that far south to spend the winter, there's nothing you can do management-wise that's going to bring those birds that far south again. And so understanding management or population trends in the context of changing distributions is really important so you're not spending sort of this, this futile attempt to always be 
being doing adaptive management when perhaps it's not your, the management that's the causative effect of population change. Of course, the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA appears to be experiencing the opposite effect. Wintering raptor populations have swelled significantly over the past few decades, making the area even more important for birds of prey than it was when originally established. The latitude where there's the densest population of wintering birds is essentially the latitude of the NCA. And the elevation of the NCA makes it very habitable for the winter. And so, yes, it's become a key wintering site, I would say. And so that was kind of one of my first sort of glimpses into the concept that even though the NCA has changed a lot, some of the ability of the animals within the NCA to respond aren't known yet. Dr. Heath's realization about just how little we actually know about different wildlife species' ability to adapt to dramatic ecosystem changes must be emphasized. There is so much that we don't know just about the basic natural history of many species, let alone the ability of these species to adapt to certain changes in their habitat. This is not to say that there hasn't been any research conducted that seeks to answer these questions about the adaptability of different raptor species. One landmark study conducted from 2014 to 2015 by Dr. Heath and Mike Cokert documented how golden eagles have adapted to massive habitat loss by shifting their diet from jackrabbits and other mammals to waterfowl. But is this current level of research and monitoring enough? Do land managers have enough information to make informed decisions that will provide for the conservation, protection, and enhancement of raptor populations, the specific purpose behind the creation of this protected area as laid out in the legislation that established it as a national conservation area? The level of science and monitoring that is needed to sustain a conservation area um, probably hasn't been there. And because of that, it's really difficult to make generalizing statements about the status of the birds in the breeding season. Mm -hmm. Although funding cuts across a number of federal government agencies have led to a decline in data collection in the NCA, raptor biologists have found ways to keep research going, as Karen Steenhoff explains. Now, golden eagles have been continuously monitored, um, mainly because of Cokert's volunteerism as well as the volunteerism of some others of us, but it's mainly Cokert who has carried it on without much support at all. The data set goes back beginning in 1966 with the work that Gary Hickman did. And then we haven't missed a year. There's been certain years when yours truly and, and a few other volunteers, you know, kept the fabric together and the BLM was good about providing a rig. While Mike Cokert's volunteerism has kept Golden Eagle monitoring going, Dr. Heath, along with other Boise State University professors in the Raptor Biology Program, have also found ways to continue exploring important research questions. One of the most alarming recent findings from Heath's research has been the impact of a parasitic insect on Golden Eagle nesting success, the Mexican chicken bug. This is a blood-sucking parasite that lives in nest material that comes up and feeds on the young uh, eagles, and perhaps some of the adults, too, if they're in the nest. It's in the family Simicidae, which is the bedbug family. You know, we have some footage right now of cameras taking images of eagles at night, and they are just covered uh, with their feet uh, in, these, in these bugs. And it almost appears as if young eagles just are up all night walking, trying to get out away. 
you know. And so these birds in heavily infested nests are anemic. They have lower growth. Um, they have higher cortisol, which affects cognitive development. And so in these long-lived birds that depend on learning, um, that can have a huge impact later in life. While nest parasites like the Mexican chicken bug have been present in the Snake River Canyon for more than 50 years, Dr. Heath and her graduate student Ben Dudek were the first to document the effect that these insects have on golden eagle nestlings. Their analysis also examined how habitat loss and climate change are influencing the spread of Mexican chicken bugs and their effect on golden eagle populations. There's many other nest parasites that have been shown to, as we have warmer winters, have higher overwinter survival, and so their effect in the breeding season is greater. And so this kind of goes back hand in hand with that winter work, right? So if we don't have cold winters anymore, and these um, bugs are hibernating in the nesting material on the cliff or in the cliff in the rocks, and they have a high, higher survival rate, that means there's more of them to go out and infest the young. While Dr. Heath's research has been focused on the impact of the Mexican chicken bugs on golden eagle nestlings, these nest parasites have been known to prey upon other raptor species as well, as Steve Alsip explains. There was one nest in particular that I remember climbing to and it was it was overhung, so I had to sort of swing myself to get to the nest. And when I swung out and grabbed the nest cliff, I could just feel this rush of these insects coming up my arm. Um, and like dozens and dozens and dozens to the point where I pushed off and and was get, immediately trying to get away from the scrape. And then I thought, you know, there's four nestling prairie falcons that are just covered. Um, so we climbed that nest once. Um, they were too young to band and bleed. So we climbed back again, and when I got to the nest, all the young had jumped out of the nest and were dead at the bottom. Because there was a time of rich funding and rich research and high knowledge generation, perspectives from that time sometimes can be a little overweighted in how the system works. And we need to keep our mind open to how the NCA works and not sort of get stuck in the, in the slice of when, the bias of when the research was done. The intensive raptor research project that was conducted in the NCA in the 1990s was focused largely on the impact of wildfire and invasive cheatgrass on the birds of prey and their habitat. And we know from our previous episode that this conversion of native sagebrush habitat to annual invasive grasses is a very serious issue. But could it be possible that there are other, even more dire threats to these raptor populations that have emerged within the past few decades? Just think about sort of the management implications here, right? So you go through the process of doing sagebrush shrub restoration um, and getting rid of cheatgrass and working towards those vegetation shifts and restoration. You go through all of that, while at the same time these bed bugs are wiping out the birds. You know, you're essentially like, while your eye is on one ball, something else is happening. Um, to your population. So how do land managers, biologists, advocacy experts, or anyone who cares about science-based management of public lands go about finding ways to increase the funding available to conduct research and long-term monitoring in the NCA or anywhere else? A law says what needs to be done, but the second stage of that is appropriation. If there's no money appropriated by Congress to do something, then they can't do it. That's the voice of John Freemuth, 
a professor of public policy and the Cecil Andrus Endowed Chair of Environment and Public Lands at Boise State University. The law may say, go out and manage the raptors, but if BLM and it's true, we're in a bad era right now where you have an administration that doesn't value funding certain things like science and public land management. One of the tricky moves one can make in politics is if you defund the gathering of information, then there is no information to make a decision. Then it's pure politics. Well, we don't know anything, so I guess we can't do anything. Or, well, there's no evidence that the raptors are in trouble. Well, that's because you had no money to fund any research to find out whether they were in trouble. It's that kind of politics. Right now, they're spending, the attention seems to be, let's spend more money on rushing through oil and gas leases, and we're less concerned about resource protection. So they make they reallocate money that way. But what happens when one of the agencies that has seen a windfall of federal funding is actively collaborating with an agency dealing with severe funding cuts? Currently, relative to funding, the Department of Interior has been cut significantly. So they do not have the resources to do everything that they need to do on the NCA, whereas uh, Department of Defense, the resources are definitely there. My name is uh, Charlie Bond. I'm the conservation branch manager for the Idaho Army National Guard. We heard Charlie talk about a number of the ways in which the Idaho Army National Guard, which is run by the Department of Defense, is actively collaborating with the Bureau of Land Management, run by the Department of the Interior, in Episode 6. We also learned that the Idaho Army National Guard operates... The only military training base within a national conservation area in the United States. But when Charlie talks about collaboration, he's talking about finding ways to share the Department of Defense's extensive financial resources. Uh, right now, the, the NCA staff is... I mean, at one point, they were down to one person, well, two people, the NCA manager and, and one person. You can't manage an NCA that way. So... Um, the nice thing is we were able to help offset that until their staffing comes back. And this will ebb and flow uh, potentially in the future. All of a sudden, the, the, the Department of Interior, their funding is going up and potentially the military is cut and we have reduced funding. Now all of a sudden, they can do that and they can help support us. But what about funding for big projects like the Prairie Falcon monitoring effort that was stalled for 16 years? I was um, at a meeting in D.C. about um, political advocacy for nonprofits. Again, that's Steve Alsip, president of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership. Uh, my phone rang and I looked and it was someone from the National Guard. It was Zoe Duran. She said, we got some of your money and we want to get these surveys started again. And I was immediately like, kind of cut her off and I was like, how much money did you, you know, like what? I don't want to be rude or abrupt, but like, are we even in the ballpark of what? And the number she threw back at me was definitely in line with um, with what it would take to get this going. And and I'm I'm sure my eyes got big and my jaw dropped a little bit. And I was like, oh, then, like very immediately, I was like, this is a thing that we could do. Um, it will take a lot of work to make it happen, but it was sort of like a a huge surprise present that you stumble upon of like, oh my gosh, like magic money appeared as if from nowhere. So we uh, funded $300,000 uh, to do the canyon survey, um, primarily emphasizing prairie falcons, but looking at all species. You know, the, the term that gets thrown around is decimal dust. When your budget is gigantic and you're like, oh, there's an extra $500,000. I had that real shock of perspective and, and what is uh, big money and what is small money. 
This call took place towards the end of 2018, and by the spring of 2019, Alsip had assembled a crew to conduct the raptor surveys down in the Snake River Canyon. Hello. How was your scrape survey? They may have chicks, but I can't tell because they're in a cavity. That's the voice of Taylor Rule, one of the field technicians hired by Alsip to help conduct prairie falcon surveys in the Snake River Canyon. They, like, did a prey delivery, and the female jumped in for a couple minutes and then was back out just on the ledge. Okay. And then they did, like, a swap of that, and then, like, the male would jump in for five minutes and then jump back out. But they always were, like, on the ledge of the opening of that cavity. So there's this super aggressive vocalization that we call cacking. That's usually them being like, this is my area and you're in my area and it's this mm-hmm. like cack, 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 cack. And so that's a very definitive sign like, all right, someone's setting up shop and they're defending an area. Mm-hmm. There's um, a vocalization called wailing. And that's usually the pair talking to each other, like the female soliciting a prey delivery or saying like, hey, this is the spot that I like, come over here and like mm-hmm. see if this spot works. And then there's this really cool vocalization they call each upping. Which is a definite pair bonding, mm-hmm. um, sort of a like a nicer, softer, sweeter vocalization than the super aggressive falcon stuff that usually happens. It's just a really unusual sound. It's a really good indication that there's a pair hanging out in the area. And so this is the very end of the season. We're late June right now. This is when birds are fledging. Um, And so we're on that kind of final check. I hear a bunch of fledglings given that kind of food bag whale call. And it's a little bit more raspy and trilly than the adult whale. It's fun to watch this. Sometimes they'll take a prey item and one of the fledglings will take it and kind of fly around with it. And then its siblings and its neighbors will come out and try to to get the prey from it and it turns into this big game. Play in young animals is often a skill building set. So what they're really doing other than just chasing each other and trying to to take the squirrel from one another is, is working on that maneuverability and catching prey and avoiding an aggressive neighbor and all those things that you have to get good at. Um, and it's kind of interesting to watch a young animal that is going to be one of the most awesome aerodynamic fastest flyers in the, in the bird world, like figuring out how to do that. These birds incubate eggs for about 30 days. And then once the eggs hatch, the young will leave the nest at about 36 days. So uh, it's kind of amazing that you go from an egg to a fully feathered and flighted falcon. Uh, 36 days is not a long time to turn into an adult falcon. On this particular day in late June, as we watched recently fledged prairie falcons flying back and forth along the canyon walls, Steve and I were about to observe something truly amazing. Luckily, I had my microphone ready to capture the action.
Talon, Talon locking and nearly crashing into the ground like 20 feet from us. That might be one of the coolest things I've ever seen. That was <laughs> awesome. What, like, were those? I think it's two fledglings and they're aggravated and so Talon locking, they grabbed feet and then that causes them to not fly very well and they start to drop and it, the sort of game is like who's going to let go first or who's going to cause the other one to crash and man, they were pretty close to hit. We're right in front of this gigantic boulder field and they were probably about 10 feet from decking out hard on one of these big boulders um, and just one let go and just enough time for them to both peel out and get back in the air before they crash landed. I mean, I'm not joking. That's, that's <laughs> one of the cooler wildlife things I've ever seen. Like that was really awesome. <laughs> yeah, that spiral that they get into and they're, you know, both birds have their wings out and they're, they're trying to fly in different directions and they end up like doing this cartwheel spiral thing. It's, it's pretty amazing. Steve and I were both giddy from the excitement of observing this dramatic interaction between these two young falcons. And it was clear from the time I spent in the canyon that there are still lots of prairie falcons nesting in the area. But how is the population doing compared to past years? What has this one year of monitoring shown us? My initial thought was like, oh my gosh, there's a ton of birds out here. A lot of these territories are occupied. We've got a lot of birds setting up shop and at least attempting to produce young. So it looks like the numbers are good. We've got a lot of birds in the canyon attempting to nest. Um, the thing that was a little more disheartening was the nesting success. So of those pairs that attempted to produce young, how many of them actually got at least one young out of the nest? And unfortunately that was on the lower end of what has been reported from the 70s till now. And so we get this mixed bag of results where there's a lot of birds and they're out there and they're trying to crank out babies. The flip side of that is that they're not being very successful at doing that. That raises a ton of questions. Like we've got birds that are attempting to nest. Why aren't they successful? Prey, climate, uh, habitat, all those things come into play. Uh, and so we've got this little one year of data and it begs all of these questions. The reason that this past year of prairie falcon monitoring has raised so many questions is that the changes going on in the NCA right now are dramatic, numerous, and complex. Many of these changes stem from climate change, such as large-scale changes in habitat from invasive annual grasses and increased wildfire, plus shifts in migration patterns and the increased prevalence of nest parasites like the Mexican chicken bug. But there are also issues stemming from population growth, such as recreational shooting, as Dr. Julie Heath explains. My main concern is being slow to respond to some of the signals that we are already starting to receive about the effects of human recreation in the NCA, specifically shooting, and how that interacts with landscape change and then how that interacts with habitat, including prey, on the predator system, which can lead to susceptibility to disease and parasites. So essentially, I'm concerned that the whole place becomes a dirt field full of crows and pigeons. I think the people that have their feet on the ground and are conducting research have seen like, oh my gosh, the house is on fire, and they're yelling for everyone to get out of the house but the federal, the sort of national office on the third floor of the building isn't hearing that. By the time they get the message, if the first three floors of the building are on fire, they're gonna have trouble adjusting to that. 
are we going to not only identify the problem, but have enough time to address the problem before the whole house goes up? And, and when the, when's the fire department getting here? Um, because hopefully someone's called them. If only we had the climate change equivalent of a fire department, some agency with unlimited funds that could rush in and solve all of these problems. The reality is that we've already seen dramatic changes in the NCA that are caused by our global climate crisis. And even if we found a way as a global society to immediately halt greenhouse gas emissions, more changes would still be inevitable. Sadly, we are not currently on track to halt greenhouse gas emissions anytime soon. In fact, global consumption of fossil fuels is on the rise, and the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has released reports that paint a dire picture of our planet's future. It's clear that the changes we've seen thus far are only the tip of the iceberg. So what does that mean for the conservation of our most treasured protected areas? National parks, monuments, NCAs, wildlife refuges, all of them are facing the prospect of dramatic and unprecedented change. But the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is in a unique position among protected areas. As one of the very few patches of protected land on the planet with a biological boundary, we must ask the question, should that boundary change as the habitat and ecosystems change? So the limiting factors of the NCA were identified in the 1990s, and it's you know, 30 years later, are those limiting factors still the same ones? You know, it's great that it has that distinction of having this evidence-based um, approach to setting the boundary, but the boundary has to be meaningful and has to be updated. I think one of the challenges anybody who is tasked with managing lines on a map struggles with is what do you do when things besides those lines change. That's the voice of Amanda Hoffman, the current manager of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. So whether that be from a natural disaster or weather patterns or development, um, the environment is always shifting and changing and yet the lines on the map often don't. That's a struggle for anybody in land management. The boundaries of this NCA actually have changed quite recently via the passage of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area Modification Act in 2017. But this change occurred to allow a controversial power transmission line to run through the Snake River Canyon, a move that some argue actually strips the NCA of its unique status as a protected area with a biological boundary. Dean Bibles explains. There was no reason for that bill. BLM should have uh, granted that right away. There was no reason that they had to, Congress had to step in because it, it was shown that it was not harmful to the birds of prey area scientifically. BLM, in my view, was being obstinate and didn't really let the scientists say this is what it should be. And I, I would like to see the law repealed and, and the boundaries restored because that takes away this global uniqueness that this area has by that, that change. In my, in my personal opinion. But if you agree with Dean Bibles about the importance of maintaining the NCA's unique biological boundary, this boundary shouldn't just be restored. A process should be established through which the boundary can be changed as habitat and the needs of the raptors change. 
But first, we would have to collect the information required to assess these changes in the habitat. We're really excited to be able to um, do another survey of prairie falcons that hasn't been done since the early 2000s. And we now know that this monitoring effort for prairie falcons will continue in 2020. But beyond that, the funding remains uncertain. While these two years of data will provide extremely important information on the health and status of the population, it's not nearly enough to make the kind of big picture management decisions that this current moment requires. As we wrap up our first season of Common Land, I'll share two key insights that have emerged from our storytelling. First, the idea of establishing protection for certain patches of land is not an idea unique to Western society. Indigenous cultures have been protecting land for thousands of years, and the Snake River Canyon wouldn't have needed its special designation as a national conservation area if that land hadn't been taken from the Shoshone and Paiute people. The principles of land stewardship and protection are ingrained in their culture, as Tribal Council Chair Ted Howard explains. We live with the earth. Our people always say, take what you need, but always leave enough that it will always be there. Second, the idea that we can protect and preserve an ecological community in perpetuity by simply drawing an imaginary boundary around an area is wrong-headed. The actions taken by humans outside of those boundaries absolutely have an impact on the ecosystems inside those boundaries. And in our global climate crisis, actions taken by individuals on the other side of the planet are impacting protected areas right here in the United States. I still believe, however, that protected areas are important and necessary to conserve key areas all around the planet. But maybe it's time for us to rethink how we conceive of this idea of protection. By exploring the history of land protection and the creation stories behind specific protected areas, we hope to reframe the discussion in a way that respects indigenous cultures and knowledge while taking a realistic look at what the future holds for protected areas all around the globe. Common Land is a production of the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production support provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, Ragged Coyote, and Jennifer Jarrett. Our theme music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, and The Great Turtle with additional music from Judy Trejo with Delgadina Gonzalez and Christina Gonzalez from their album Circle Dance Songs of the Paiute and Shoshone. Additional audio was provided by the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and freesound.org. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits. <laughs>